What would happen if each person in your workplace had one week per year that they could reflect on where they had been and where they wanted to go into the next year? And also, what have people who have been labelled as schizophrenics, what have they got to teach us? Beyond Wellbeing, leading a thriving, generative and conscious workplace culture with Daryl Brown and Lena Mberku. So today we're talking with the current Chief Executive of SANE Australia, Jack Heath, and he's been working to improve the lives of Australians affected by mental health illness for more than two decades. So uh, good to have you with us, uh, Jack. Thank you Thanks, for Thanks, Gerald. Us. Great yeah. to be with you both. And we were just talking before around... Um, just some of the um, some of the things that you've instituted across the organisations that you've been part of, uh, in terms of a, a really healthy work practice, and we were just talking about that before. So that's this this idea of one week of reflection. Now that sounds pretty intense to me, but maybe you could just unpack that a little bit more. We've talked about it a little bit, but but yeah, just just introduce that idea and. and what might be the benefit to an organisation that might like to uh, take this on? Yeah, so um, the the idea came about uh, and going back, I was I was working for Prime Minister Keating back in late '94 and was pretty burnt out. Um, had a number of traumas as a adolescent and also sort of later on in life, and went off to the Blue Mountains to do a Vipassana course with the view to sort of recharge my batteries, as it were. And in the course of that, just came to the realization that I just had to stop. I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And um, it was just like an epiphany. It was just, Jack, you've got to stop. And then I came back and essentially quit my job and took a fair bit of time off. And, um, and during that time was sort of deep, well, deep reflection. I think probably a period of extended severe depression, which might have been a bit of a sort of a swing to sort of bounce back from some of the manic, you know, behaviour that I've been doing sort of in work and things. And, um, and then subsequent to that, um, was involved in um, an online conversation with Deepak Chopra. Um, so I was sitting in my bedroom in Canberra in Kingston, I think it was about August 1995. And uh, we had this online conversation. And the idea was about, you know, how we might use, um, spoke to him about, couldn't we use the internet for social benefit? And he replied, Oh, absolutely. And I was just blown away by the fact that here were 30 of us around the world and we were on the Microsoft network at the time. And um, we were having, you know, I was having an exchange with Deepak Chopra sitting there in San Francisco. And um, off the back of that, I rang up a friend who was running Microsoft at the time, Daniel Petrie, and I said, this technology is extraordinary. And he said to me, he said, look, why don't you do something using the internet to address youth suicide? Because here's a way I'd lost a cousin to suicide a number of years prior to that. And so we set up off the back of that, what is today um, reachout.com, which is the online youth suicide or online youth mental health service that exists. But when I, when I started the organization, that experience of having that time away was, um, was so critical. And fortunately, um, the founding directors of the organisation were Michael Rennie, who was at McKinsey at the time, Paul Gielding, who'd just been running Greenpeace International, 
um, and Alexandra Yule, who'd been Telstra Businesswoman of the Year, but had her own Tibetan Buddhist practice as well. And what we ended up doing was agreeing to institute this reflection leave policy, whereby people get an extra week's leave over and above their four weeks annual leave. And originally, I think with all my evangelical, you know, fervor, if you can be evangelical about reflection, I don't know, but was sort of thinking, oh, everyone's got to go off and meditate and be in a cave and do this. And then what we came to realize was that um, everybody's got something that's sitting just a little bit below the surface. And when we're at work, um, we sort of, it's very hard to give yourself permission to go and take a week off and think about these things. And, you know, some people say, well, I couldn't afford to do it. Or they'd say, you know, I don't want to give up my holidays. I've got, you know, young family. And so the idea was that it was over and above what you're already getting and that if you didn't use it, you would lose it. So there was that incentive. And, um, and, and one of the, you know, I have a Buddhist practice, so I'd go off and do a Buddhist retreat, but we had a young woman, this is going back probably early 2000s, but she was on our front desk, you know, working at reception and she was a foster child and she uh, decided that she would go and meet her birth mother who she hadn't seen in a decade or so. And so with this reflection leave policy, it, it sort of, it, it, it's got to be relevant to the particular individual, where they're up to, what's important for them, that it has to be structured. People have to go through a process of applying and explaining what they're going to do and showing what their daily routine is. Um, and then at the end of it, once people are back in the office, they're invited to go and share their experience with people in a staff meeting, not required to. So for me, this has been something that's been, um, uh, been absolutely critical. And for those of us working in the not-for-profit sector and we're often a lot of the time working in mental health, you're sort of very much geared to thinking about others all the time. Sometimes we're not so good at doing the self-nurturing piece, taking care of ourselves. And so we've just sort of found it's a really uh, something that, that people who've experienced value it enormously. And, uh, you know, we, we haven't done a, if you like a, what do you call it? One of the, um, like a productivity analysis of it. But I've got no doubt that if you did that, that that additional cost of a week's leave would be, you know, repaid many, many times over. And so when I've gone to different organisations, um, I've always made sure that we instituted that. And I think it's something that people particularly value. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love this initiative. I'm, uh, I've done Vipassana as well, and I'm a yoga teacher, so I highly believe and uh, appreciate the time off and the uh, time for reflection and meditation. Um, I'm wondering, like, when you approach all those companies, um, I'm imagining that there could be also some sceptics and some cynics. So how would you get leadership buy-in? Yeah, so I think it's it's interesting. It's it's you've got to get the leadership um, adopting this from the top. And um, you know, my friend Michael Rennie, who I mentioned at the time, he was very junior when we set up the organisation at McKinsey, and then subsequent to that, he you know went to New York and was leading you know a global practice around sort of the issues of you know involving. Um, with leading corporate organisations globally, with about sort of making that space and time. Um, to sort of have more of that sort of perspective on things. And so I think it's critical, though, is that you've got to get um, endorsement at a leadership level. And I think this is where it's absolutely critical. And it's the same thing in mental health. So if I think about, 
know, organisation that we've been associated with, um, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, where one of our, the same directors, um, who's our treasurer, um, is very senior at PwC. Um, they have a wonderful program called Green Light to Talk, where it started off as only being senior people in the organisation would share their stories that might have been of their own mental health battles or it might have been of a family member. And, and what happens is that when that comes from the leadership, it gives everyone else down the organisation the permission to be able to share their stories. Because a lot of these things often, though, people would understand and get the benefits of it, but it's hard if you're trying to push it up just from HR or from a wellbeing perspective if you don't have that receptivity further up the line. So for me, it was always becomes important to identify where that leadership is and also to start to retell those stories um, because that's the really critical thing. It's the storytelling, uh, I think, that really sort of shifts things significantly for people. I, just, just picking up on that as well, the message with the, the week away, in some ways that's kind of, is that like a, a perhaps sometimes a values reset or a values realignment or how would you, how would you see the, those key benefits of how that works perhaps then coming back into your workplace? Yeah, so I, I, th I think the thing is that um, it's, it's sort of very much an individual reflection and part of the thing that's important about it is how it's set up to start with. So it's important that there's a process, if you like, of engagement, pushback and that to test that what someone's wanting to do um, is something that's really, um, really important and significant to them. Um, so the idea is by setting it up in that structured way initially is that when you're off on your week's reflection leave, you almost want people to be trapped into a consciousness that says, I'm in reflection, right? So they're almost sort of forced to slow down. You, you're forced to go into that space of being, um, being removed from, from, from the everyday. And look, it, it will vary in terms of where people are at. Um, you know, I mean, for some people, and I guess one of the things for me is sometimes if you go off with great big expectations about some wonderful spiritual experience or whatever, um, the universe will probably give you a bit of a slap around the head or sort of bring you back to earth pretty quickly. So it's important you don't go with unrealistic expectations. But like each and every one of us has something that's sitting there just a little bit below the surface that we sort of think, oh, look, if I had the time, I know it's important. I'd really like to go and do that or address that issue. Or it might be, you know, going back and you know, sitting down and having a conversation, you know, one of our staff members who's, whose father was a refugee that escaped from Europe. And, you know, I'd always wanted to have that conversation. So it can be a family reconnection. It could be anything. But what happens is that when you, if you push people a little bit just to dig a bit deeper, whatever their sort of opportunity for growth or whatever will present itself. And so it's important that you give that rather than trying to say, oh, you've got to go off and meditate or do this or that, that you... Um, allow the person to find what it is that they're looking to go towards. And in some ways, some of that might seem quite, you know, um, banal or whatever. One person we had just sort of said, look, I'm going to walk for five kilometres a day. And um, for that particular individual, that was a big deal. And she found it really difficult. And when she was relaying it afterwards, 
it was sort of, you know, it sounded how it was painful and difficult. And I sort of said to her at the end, I said, oh, well, you won't be doing that again. She said, oh, no, 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 I'm going to go and do it again. So part of this thing, though, is that you, you, you need to know that people have got an internal movement to wanting to, you know, to go deeper in terms of their humanity or in terms of their experience. And it's just about creating a small environment for them to go and do that. So you're not trying to engineer any big shifts in individuals. You're trying to create a sort of a safe structured space uh, within which they can, if you like, till their own field um, and, 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 and harvest, you know, the fruits of that, that, that time in reflection, because, you know, the thing is that we're, well, COVID, COVID has slowed us down. Prior to COVID though, it was sort of like, we go so fast um, and we don't notice, and we don't notice things about ourselves or about others. So I don't know whether or not this reflection leave thing might actually, people might be lasting. They want to do sort of coming out of COVID. I don't know, having been sort of stuck in there stuck in our homes for so long but I, I just think that there's um, a currency around this when we move at such a pace and we don't really take that time to nurture ourselves and then what happens is that from a workplace perspective um, people feel a part of them has been acknowledged or they discover a part of them they didn't really realize that they have and so it's very empowering and so I think they then become appreciative of having been able to go on a journey or given time to do the journey to discover something about themselves rather than having someone sort of input or change or teach them to do something. There seems to be this, um, there's, I don't know if this is an assumption, but there's perhaps there's a, there's a way of saying that growth or personal growth equals happiness. And obviously happiness in a workplace is a good thing. So would that be a, a simple little sum to put into that? Yeah, look, I, I think, um, you know, I mean, one of the challenges around this, though, is that sometimes people, you know, as I did when I was working for Prime Minister Keating, I went and did this and decided I'd quit my job. So you've got to be a bit careful in terms of <laughs> people coming back and saying, I'm out of here. But I, I, I think the thing is that um, so long as we as we have a sense of, of of, of growth, we've got a sense of movement towards something. And, um, and and I think that that's really important. And that sense of moving towards something that's more positive, even though the journey might be very painful and difficult along the way, um, I think that's something that contributes to um, a sense of well-being. I think, you know, obviously, I mean, happiness is a, is, is a, is a, is a word often used and depends on how you, you know, unpack it and that. But I think creating the opportunity for people to grow, and this would apply personally or professionally from development perspectives, is, is that is something that people value deeply. And even though it might be particularly, you know, hard in the process, like I mentioned before about, you know, the young woman, Emma, who would go walking, she found that really, really, um, challenging and difficult and uncomfortable, but at the end of it, um, because we often don't give ourselves the time or the space to sit with the discomfort in our lives and we sort of cocoon and we're afraid. And if you've got that sort of safe environment to experience a bit of discomfort, um, I think we then get a bit surprised by our ability to deal with things, which are then in turn critical to growth but we don't grow if we're afraid. So I think the sum of all that is that it actually 
leads you to a better place. Um, and you end up, when you're at a better place, you end up invariably being, I think, more productive. Jack, if, um, if you had all the resources uh, you needed and no constraints, like what is it that you'd like to achieve with saying that you haven't achieved yet? Well, um, uh, I'd, I'd like to know that we had capacity funding for the next three years. So I'm finishing up at the end of the year and we'll have a new CEO um, coming in either later this year or early next year. Um, I guess the issue for us is that, you know, we look particularly at the moment with the impact of, um, of COVID mm. and with saying we're dealing with people who are, you know, dealing with complex mental health issues. So we're not talking about mild to moderate conditions. We're talking about things that, that can be very debilitating. We're also talking about you know, around about eight, 900,000 Australians would fall into that category each year of that, what we'd call a complex mental health issue. And then if you think for, say, each of those person, there's five family, friends, members, colleagues, particularly impacted, you're looking at about 4 million Australians in some way, you know, impacted, you know, directly on a regular basis. So for saying our work is very much about how do we provide um, support to those people and we do that through whether it's um, direct counselling over our helpline, um, whether or not it's through storytelling with people who've attempted suicide to show that there's um, that those feelings of suicidality um, is something that are far more common than people realise or whether or not it's our peer support forums which we partner with I think we're up to about 77 organisations around Australia because it, it goes back a little bit to this sort of reflection leave thing is that is that the, the stories of people who've dealt with great adversity and hardship, um, they're the things that can actually help others who are dealing with those in the present time. And so for us, this notion of peer support is absolutely uh, critical. Um, you know, I, I, I reluctantly came to the job at Sane just eight and a half years ago. And I say reluctantly because, you know, my, my cousin who'd taken his life had schizophrenia. I had an aunt with schizophrenia. Uh, my mother had been in and out of the, um, uh, the psych hospital, the Melbourne Clinic in Richmond there a number of times. And the idea of going back into this sort of hardcore mental health area was something I was very reluctant to do but having gone there and met people you know when I think after eight years I'd say probably four or five of the closest friendships I've made or be five are all people who are living with schizophrenia and have been for many years and so for, for me the, the concern is you know you know finishing up at the end of the year and you sort of feel bad about it and oh should I be doing this or what I'm, I'm clear that it's the right thing to do but for me to know that saying was going to continue on and go from strength to strength for me would be one of the best things that um you know could happen i think for me from a very selfish perspective to know that it was going to be strong and it probably is going to be strong anyway without without me going going forward but to know that those people and their stories would get airtime and would be given the opportunity to inspire others i think is critical because you know, I look at COVID and in the early days of lockdown, you know, I went out ringing up a number of our peer ambassadors. There's about 90 people around Australia. And, 
you know, I went out there with my earnestness and worrying about them and how you're going and how you're coping. And, and that was partly because, you know, with COVID, we had people who were starting to encounter what would we call those complex mental health issues for the first time. We had other people who've had their existing symptoms amplified. So however bad it was, you know, it's two, three times as bad. There were some, you know, unfortunate cases where people got tipped back into a traumatic experience and felt trapped in that trauma. But what I found to my initial surprise, and it was far more widespread than, than I was expecting, is I'd talk to people and they'd say, um, Jack, um, I was socially isolated before. Um, that hasn't changed. Um, I'm still on the DSP. That hasn't changed. Um, I felt that there was madness just in my own head in the immediate world. Now it feels like it's across the whole world. And by the way, I've spent 5, 10, 15, 20 years dealing with, you know, crises and things on a daily basis. And my experience of COVID is I'm doing just fine. And so, <laughs> and, and, and so, and so this, but it's hard because the thing is that when you're working for mental health organisations or any charity and you're trying to get more funds and support, there's this sort of need to say that it's terrible, awful, and you've got to do it. And if you don't do it, we're all in trouble. And in, in the doing of that is, is that we, um, we, what's the word? Like we not so much undervalue, but we fail to point out that those that we, for many of those that we seek to serve, they're actually sort of doing okay. And they've got things to teach us. Yeah. And so it sort of invites a humility um, mm. that, that's not always there when you're in a well-intentioned, partly sort of saviour mode. That's, um, that is really cool. And, and I, it seems to pick up on something perhaps where we're going in the conversation anyway. But um, I noted before you were talking about some of your best friends now, uh, people experiencing mental illness. And I wonder, because in society we we would often, and even in the workplace or anywhere else, whenever you kind of hear that tag that someone's been labelled mm -hmm. with a mental illness, mm -hmm. that they they suddenly become a freak, you know. Like, yes. so so can you help us understand then some other ways to look at mental illness and perhaps, you know, to even be able to form friendships with people that might be experiencing that to understand that perhaps there isn't any other that they're actually still like one of us yeah look i mean so th this is the thing was when i when i went to sane i was partly drawn to sane you know i say i didn't want to go there because of family experience and the like but also there was a um a woman who i was at university with margie nunn and we were in the I know it was a famous, but the 1983 Melbourne University Law Review, of which Rob Sitch and a whole lot of others went off and became very famous about it. But, um, but I saw that Margie was there and she'd shared her story of having bipolar. And I just sort of, you feel that there's a connection there. So I sort of leaned in, if you like, a bit. But then when I, when I started at saying within a couple of days, um, you know, my wonderful predecessor, Barbara Hocking, she gave me a book by Sandy Jeffs, who's a poet, and I met Sandy, who was then what we call one of our sane speakers, um, and um, you know, and she's she'd be one, you know one of my close closest friends now. But also, I met um, a woman by the name of Jackie Lane, 
And Jackie had been living, she had later onset of um, schizophrenia. Um, she also had a history of, of trauma as well, which was partly might've been the trigger for it. But I sort of met Jackie and I said, oh, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm the executive officer at the Victorian and Human Rights Equal Opportunity Commission. I manage all the, the CEO and the board papers and all that. And I was going, hang on a sec, you've got schizophrenia. People with schizophrenia don't do that. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was out of curiosity, we were just, I was intrigued and I thought, okay, and we'd catch up for, a, you know, breakfast, you know, every couple of months or whatever in Carlton when I was down in Melbourne. And in the end of it, she ended up becoming my executive assistant for I think about two and a half or three years until she retired. And so I think it's this story about it doesn't matter whether it's someone living with mental illness or whether or not it's an Indigenous person or a refugee or person of another faith is that, that we construct this sense of other um, until we are able to be in a place of genuine communion where we can actually experience that common humanity. And the thing for me was that, you know, I went from, you know, sort of thinking, you know, I, and I, you don't want to be Pollyannaish about it. Like if someone's going through a pretty serious psychotic episode, you know, that can be really challenging. The issue is, though, is that the way in which our media... Um, and this, whether it's covering the news or whether it's Hollywood, is that they will portray having a mental illness as someone being inherently violent. And, and that was sort of, even though I'd worked in mental health, that was sort of the perception I had when I came to SANE. But it's like when you sit down and you spend time with people, you realise that you know, there will be a very, very minority of cases. It's a bit like saying if a couple of young African guys, you know, are involved in the gang and someone gets, suddenly the whole group gets, gets tarred with that particular um, brush. And I think the same thing happens with mental health. And so it's about getting the stories out of people who are dealing with these things on a daily basis and in some ways are more heroic than any sort of, you know, CEO or executive or people getting awards who are managing to deal with these challenges. And when I think of those friends, these are people who are every bit as um, or more compassionate, wise, caring than others. And so the thing that we're needing to do is at a time when we're, you know, we're fearful, we've got rising levels of anxiety right across the community, and this is pre-COVID, we need to be able to find safe spaces where we can connect with what might be called the other, right? And realize that the other is not that different from the self. And so I think this is sort of the work of our times. And this is, you know, going down to workplaces as well is to understand that we share a common humanity, um, but we've just sometimes don't give ourselves a safe space or opportunity to be able to engage around that. Very cool. Very cool. Which kind of sets us up for your next move, doesn't it? So, so you're you're moving into a space, I suppose, where that's where that's kind of be going to be your kind of platform. Yeah. Look, I, I think so. So, um, beginning of next year, I'm really excited, but also nervous um, to take on the role of um, chief executive officer at Philanthropy Australia. Um, and this is like the peak organisation for individual donors, trusts and foundations and that people who are, you know, looking to try and get more philanthropic sort of support to people throughout the community, whether it be mental health or a whole range of other issues. 
And when I was writing my um, application, which was in the early days of COVID, um, my sense was that um, we've all become so fearful, we're becoming so tribal. Uh, when you see the way things have played out with respect to the states and the barriers we put up between states, um, it's, it's natural that when we feel anxious, we try and limit our group or go back to a tribe that gives us a sense of belonging and definition. So there is a sort of, in times of anxiety or fear, there is a retreat to other, um, but inherently it's not sustainable. Um, and, and it seems to me that the work of our times is very much about re-engaging with this sense of common humanity and trying to do that in a way that we don't have to go to the pits of our depravity as we did, you know, whether the first or the second world war, where you had to see, you know, um, hum humanity or individuals at their worst in order to say, hang on a sec, this is not who we are. This is not what it's about. And so you, you look coming out of the second world war where you had that whole push around the United Nations and a sense of common um, humanity. And I think that that's, I think that that's the work that needs to be done at the moment. And I think that where you've got now, you've got governments with huge deficits as a result of a lot of the support around COVID, which I think is, is, is a good thing, is that they're not going to be um, having the ability to take risks or to do uh, new ventures. And I think sort of philanthropy is now coming into its own. And so for me, I think there's a really big opportunity for even though it's in the overall scheme of things, it's smaller amounts of money, but these are the things where I think we can get some of the change, where we can fund some of the innovative projects, the things that will actually have a um, you know profound impact long term. But it you know the word the word philanthropy means means love of humanity, and so you know th th now's the time to put that love to work. And, um, and so I'm excited about the prospect of working with people who start from a basis of being inherently generous towards others. Um, you know, none of us are pure in this, we've all got a bit of ego, but I'd rather start working with people who are consciously wanting to give out to others and then to try and encourage more of that um, and also to do it in a way that's clear headed. Um, but the end of the day brings a sense of joy because I think joy is the thing that inspires and it's the thing that attracts. And so if I've got a lot of money and I'm worried about what I'm going to do with it, I see someone else, I see a Bill Gates giving away billions of dollars and he seems quite happy and he seems to be saying, this is the best thing I've ever done. And so people's sense of joy, I think is the thing that then unlocks it in others. And in terms of the work with Philanthropy Australia, I'm particularly keen to go and see those donors, those philanthropists who have that sense of joy, um, because I think that's the thing that then unlocks the generosity in others. Mm, that's very, very inspiring, Jack. Um, just because we're getting close to wrapping up, um, I would love to hear what sort of closing remarks would you have, or if there was one message that you'd like uh, HR to, to hear around mental health or around humanizing work or uh, enhancing people's well-being at work, especially in the workplaces of the future. What, what would that message be? What would, would you like people to hear? I think, I think it's about creating a, a place that is safe 
um, and whether or not that's um, you know within a family environment, whether or not it's within a school or within a workplace, because uh, it's only really my my sort of I guess experience or belief. It's only really when you feel um, um, safe that you can start to put the pieces back together. Um, when you know, from a physiological perspective, when I feel safe, I'm not in the adrenals, I'm not in my amygdala, and I start tapping in, whether it's doing yoga or a whole range of breath exercise, I start tapping in and realising that the, that the body and the mind aligned have an ability to bring us back to a sense of wholeness. And so, you know, now we talk about in the workplace, um, it needs to be physically and psychologically safe. So in times of COVID, in times when people are afraid, I think the thing that we're after um, is a sense of safety. And I think that we can find that, I, well, we do find that sense of safety in our common humanity. Um, and I, I, I think the more that we can come back to the sense that, you know, my, my work colleague, you know, they're after the same things that I'm after, right? Whether or not it's someone I'll meet in the street, and, and to try and understand at a time when we retreat to tribe and we retreat to difference and other because we're worried is trying to create safe spaces that enable us um, to transcend those, those, um, those situations where we're, where we're fearful. And in doing that, then we open up um, ourselves to a better space and then we open up to the possibility of joy. And I think when we're joyous, that is the thing that inspires others who might not be feeling that way at the time mm, beautiful I love it. well thank you very much jack for having this little chat with us that's um, been awesome there's some great gems in there and um, we have appreciated your your message and your message of um yeah not othering and i suppose that's a it's a weird one because it's almost like that anti-competition uh story isn't it and there's a way and i firmly believe that as well that even within workplaces and with workspaces as a way that we can collaborate together uh, versus the the isolationist type type thing of of othering which com competition can s sometimes bring but yeah really really great to have you on and um we we um yeah give you our blessings for your next step and uh look forward to uh seeing what, what what happens in the future for you there too well look thanks so much and it's just great to have this opportunity because when you're going through transitions to be able to sort of articulate some of these things in your own mind and where you're going is from a selfish perspective is quite beneficial to me so i've certainly enjoyed it and found it value at my end so thanks so much thank you you've been listening to beyond well-being with daryl brown and lena mberku now if you want to get in touch with uh with Jack and the SANE organisation, uh, that's sane.org.au. To get in touch with us, Lena Mboku, uh, you can check her out on her, her LinkedIn profile or also at macroleaders.com.au. Myself, Daryl Brown, also certainly have a, um, a LinkedIn profile and uh, you can find me at upsidedownleader.com. Well, um, please share this uh, podcast around if you have found any value in it. And um, it would be great to give us a review. That would help us out on the old iTunes and so on. Uh, and we look forward to uh, catching up with you again next week with another great interview.